Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Well, keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight, my panel, we've got Alex Dean, who's the author and political commentator, Lee Jones, who's the Professor of Political Economy and International Relations, and anthropologist Marianne Erhota. Good evening to you three. Hello. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. End of the week already. How has that happened? Anyway, you know <laughs> the drill, don't you? It's not just about us. It's about you as well at home. What's on your mind tonight? What are we uh, not talking about that we should be? Uh, any of your thoughts on the topic so far? GB Views at GB news.uk tweet me at michelle jubes or at gb news also i've just introduced tonight's panel when you're at home and you're sitting there you think you know i'd really like to hear from this person that person who uh, tell me you can email me as i just said gbviews at gbnews.uk <coughs> Now, we're all getting on with our lives, aren't we, after COVID? But it seems care homes and hospitals didn't really get that memo because many are still banning or placing incredibly strict restrictions on visitors, which, according to some MPs, could be in breach of the Human Rights Act. It's claimed that keeping vulnerable people isolated with no or heavy restricted visits from loved ones is far worse for the patient than the effects of COVID could be. What do we think to this? I mean, is it a human right to be kept safe? And if so, should care homes and hospitals therefore then be able to decide their own rules if that's what they're saying they're doing it for? Uh, Alex Dean, I'll start with you on this one. Um, I think it's completely wrong. And I understand that some authorities and care homes want to make decisions that they think are in the best interests of, uh, of the people living there. But to have a patchwork in which homes are making decisions that are completely out with the guidance they've received from government. And when you're dealing with people towards the end of their life, years that still, months or weeks, that still have real value and depriving them potentially of the company of their loved ones in that time, I, I think is truly awful. Let's not pretend that it's a unique policy area. Uh, in, in this country in the past, I was a campaigner when this was uh, happening, some counties would retain the DNA of innocent people after having taken it, and some counties would get rid of it. So if your house was burgled uh, and they took your DNA to eliminate that sample from inquiries, some counties, depending on where you lived, would keep it and be running that as, as if you were a criminal to, to find out uh, whether your DNA had been picked up, and some counties wouldn't. And people suddenly realised, well, there, there's this patchwork of authorities making decisions that have, can have a real impact without any real control from the centre. This is worse. It's the same principle where at the, at the grassroots there are institutions making decisions that are going to stymie the ability of you to go and see your mum and dad, your grandmother, your grandfather, potentially in the last uh, weeks of their life uh, because they think that they're doing the right thing, notwithstanding the fact the government's told them not to. But I think it's much worse than the example that, that I've given uh, because there is this finite capacity to see people. And I, I, mm. I, mean, I happen to have lost my father uh, during coronavirus, not to, to coronavirus, and I thank my lucky stars every day that it was at home rather than in a care home when we wouldn't have seen him. And I, I really hate the thought of the people who are going through this now um, and potentially, long after, as we know now, the greatest coronavirus threat has passed, mm. um, not being able to see their loved ones. 
Just to put some uh, context onto this, by the way, one in eight hospital trusts in England are still refusing to allow uh, re relatives to visit patients. This is despite NHS guidance, Marianne, saying that they should be opening up now to these visitors. What do you make of it all? Well, I think it's very difficult, isn't it? Because I will, at this point, give the benefit <coughs> of the doubt to hospital trusts, to care homes, that they are trying to act in the best interests because it is bottom line in their interest to do no harm to their patients, to their residents. And it's, it's self-evident that someone having contact with their loved ones, having that support of friends and family around them will help them either recover or live a, a healthy, quality, um, fulfilled, not lonely, not isolated life. So you have to ask, well, what, what is the threat that they perceive that means that these policies are still in place? And what really are the mechanisms that we kind of challenge those those policies if we as a society or perhaps our government or perhaps a local authority kind of looking at care homes within their jurisdiction, they go, what you're doing is wrong. What is the process? I don't know. We certainly shouldn't be leaving it to individual families to be effectively standing on the doorstep begging for access to their loved ones because that isn't fair. So I think fundamentally, I'm, I'm with Alex on this one. It isn't right. The rest of the world, the rest of the country is moving on and yet people are effectively locked away from their families through, not through choice. And it doesn't seem necessarily like the, the policies that are in place in these trusts, in these care homes, are in line with the, the perceived threat at the moment, unless we know some, unless we don't know something unless they that know the something we epidemiologists don't. do. But Leah, I have a little sneaky suspicion about all this, and I grant you this, it's not a very scientific uh, suspicion. Uh, I wonder if it's more to do with, you know, relatives. So say, for example, your mum, your dad, whoever, is in a care home and then contracts COVID and dies. I think that there'll be some families that would then look to sue the care home or the hospital and say, well, hang on a second, you didn't adequately protect my loved one from the risk of COVID. So I wonder if it's kind of uh, organisations being overly cautious to protect themselves from that side of the fence. I mean, that could be the case. I'm not sure what the legal situation is. I mean, you could create, the government could create a legal exemption, right? So that would indemnify care homes against those kinds of legal suits if, if that was actually the issue. I'm not sure what the issue is, but it seems to me we've never got the issue around hospitals and care homes right. We, we made massive mistakes right at the beginning by discharging many elderly people into care homes, mm. leading to over 25,000 right. deaths in the first couple of months. And of course, in the first wave, up to 16% of COVID infections were acquired inside hospitals. We've got to remember that lockdown was never the right policy solution for a disease where about 85% of the population were not at high risk. But the proportion of the population that is at risk are overwhelmingly concentrated in places like care homes and also in hospitals. And there is a lot of infection acquired in those settings. And so it is right, if we, we don't want lockdown, but also do we really want a free-for-all where those specifically vulnerable populations are not protected? Because we know that the vaccines are leaky. They don't fully prevent transmission. They don't fully prevent infection and death. They do reduce it, but they don't eliminate it. So we do need what was called for back in October 2020, focus protection, or as somebody else puts it, precision public health. 
designed to protect those populations. But what that should focus on is on making visits to hospitals and care homes COVID safe in as much as possible. So not deny those people human contact because that can be harmful or even cruel. Of course it can. But, but Kim... If it's harmful, I, what, the thing I miss in this discussion is older people and vulnerable people are still entitled to make their own choices and make evaluations about the risk they want to take on mm. and to determine for themselves what is real quality of life. Might it be the duration or might it be the time that they spend mm. uh, with their, their loved ones? And even if, in the ultimate final analysis, those things are in conflict. And you may find that there are some people at the ex outer extremity of their, their old age who say... I'm willing to take on the risk and I'm willing to see my loved ones, even if it might, you say, materially diminish the time I have left on Earth. Well, well then, someone but... taking cancer treatment and so they're massively immunosuppressed, but they go, hang on a minute, the clock is ticking. I want to spend that time with family, friends. But I the don't want to send in a bubble. The pushback to that would be that, um, and a little caveat here, I've spent a month in hospital during lockdown and I was denied a single solitary visitor. So I spent a whole month in hospital during a very frightening time for me without anyone being allowed in to come and see me. I was just on my own. And it was awful. It was really scary and all the rest of it. And all I would say is, so I'm against this, by the way, I'm against all of these restrictions on visitors. But I guess to your point in terms of why don't we let the residents uh, or patients make their own choices? Well, that might be fine if patient A decides, you know what, I'm, I'm terminally ill. I want to see my family anyway. That's great. But what about Doris in the bed mm. next to them? And that's, why I th that's why I've said that the focus needs to be on making these uh, settings as safe and secure as possible through excellent biosecurity measures and the testing of uh, visitors, for example. That will be a good way to provide access to visitors for some patients. And if you look at the amount of aid and assistance that's been directed to care homes, it's really pitiful when you consider the overall expenditure um, through lockdown Absolutely policy. Right. It's only about a quarter of a million pounds per care home. So we've still got very poorly paid care home assistants moving between different sites. We haven't got adequate biosecurity. We still haven't got enough testing on demand. So the government really should have spent more resource making these settings as secure as possible to reduce the risk, not just to isolate people off. And it's always the easy solution is, oh, no visitors at all then. How about a more complex approach which requires more resource? We've never got that right, right from the beginning of all this. Do you know what? Not to be... Well, to be entirely cynical, but perhaps not incorrect, I think the reason that this story is in the press now is to deflect attention from the, from the reports earlier this week saying that actually the government broke the law by discharging people who were um, COVID positive to basically go and decimate the rest of their care homes. Because that, that people have blood on their hands because of that. And I think the other thing that we can't, that we must not forget while discussing this is that COVID, like any other virulent disease, is a dynamic threat. What We didn't know anything about COVID when it first appeared in the world in the early days of 2020. We thought it was con contracted by um, surface contact and everyone was wiping down their shopping. People were terrified of picking up a, a shopping trolley. Now we know that it's different. Now we know that certain groups of people are, are more um, at risk of that, that virus than others. We know the virus itself has changed. We know how to treat it when someone does contract it so that they're less likely 
likely to die, be ventilated and then die anyway. Alex? I, I certainly hope that you're wrong about this being uh, party political in motivation. And I note that the, the MPs complaining about this differential in care home policy is a cross party group of, of, of parliamentarians pointing out they think it's wrong. Mm. But I simply, accepting all the points that you guys have made, I simply make the point that it, you, we're now in this perverse situation where someone may or may not have, for example, been able to meet their grandchild before they died, depending on which care home they happened to be a resident mm. in. That cannot be right. See, I've got not one, but two emails uh, saying this same suggestion. And I wonder if there's something in it, um, because um, what they're saying is, in their view, hospitals and care homes have never wanted visitors. So this whole, you know, you don't have visitors, it will right. make life so much easier for the staff, because let's face it, uh, relatives can be a bit of a pain in the backside, can't they? <laughs> we all want the best for our relatives, and we all like to tell the nurses and the doctors, etc., and the care workers how we feel uh, things should be done. So interested uh, to hear your thoughts on that. Kim says, well, most people in the homes should be taken care of by their families. So what I think Kim's kind of saying is rather than complaining about not being able to access your family, why don't you bring them back to your home and look after them there? I guess, though, Kim, it depends on the severity of their needs, doesn't it? Uh, and also, you know, whether or not your home is equipped for you to be able to do that. There's lots of sad stories coming in, by the way, that you're sharing with me um, about your experiences. I'll be reading some of those out uh, when we come back from the break, actually. But there's lots of you that are kind of saying the same thing. Uh, Glenn says, Michelle, I'm tearing my hair out. I can't get access to my 88-year-old mother, except through a window. Uh, they call lockdown at the drop of a hat because it makes their jobs easier. See, I find that heartbreaking. Yeah. You can only see your 88-year-old mum through a window still. See, to me, that is just inhumane. That is just cruel. Uh, I just, I would love to know, Glenn, if you're still watching, uh, let me know what their um, explanation for that is when you question them on that. What do they say to you? Why is that the case? Someone else told me um, that they can only see their uh, mum in a kind of pod thing. If they're in a pod behind a screen, um, it's not right, is it? Surely. Let me know your thoughts. GBviews at gbnews.uk. I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back, the government has announced it's going to send thousands of UK troops to Eastern Europe in a show of strength towards Russia. Is this going to work? Should we uh, be getting involved to this extent? We'll have that to come and a lot more. I'll see you in a couple of minutes. Hello there, I'm Michelle Dubry. Welcome back to Jubes & Co. Uh, keeping me company until seven o'clock tonight, my panel, we've got author and political commentator, Alex Dean. We've got Lee Jones, who's a professor of political economy and international relations and anthropologist, Marianne O'Hotta. So many of you um, re are getting in contact with me about your care home experiences of your loved ones. They are so sad, um, just so many people. I mean, where to even begin? Uh, Claire says, last June, my mum turned 93. Uh, she was in a care home temporarily because she broke her leg. We were only allowed to wave at her through a first floor window. She's almost blind as it is, and it was heartbreaking. Uh, however, there's a happy ending because she says this year, she's happily settled in assisted living and fully recovered, and she's going to have one humdinger of a 94th birthday, Claire says. <laughs> a happy outcome. Well, good. Uh, happy birthday to your mum, 94. 
Oh, she's doing well. Good on her. Um, yeah, keep your stories coming. By the way, one of the things I forgot to mention in that uh, subject is about, do you remember all of these vaccine mandates, all of the staff that were um, basically sacked from care homes because they refused to be double vaccinated? That will surely have had an impact on how care homes are running. Uh, you know, how many staff are there to even be able to facilitate some of these visitors? Wow, your emails are flying in. I'll try and get some more of those stories towards the end of the show. But for now, let's just move on. Uh, the government has announced thousands of UK troops will be sent to Eastern Europe in response to Russian aggression in Ukraine. The Defence Secretary Ben Wallace says the deployment will show solidarity and strength. Will it, Lee Jones? Solidarity, strength? Well, it is very performative. I mean, it is designed to send a message to Vladimir Putin that NATO is united and will take decisive action and so on and so forth. Um, I think it's also signalling to a domestic public as well that, you know, Russia is this huge threat to Eastern Europe. And to that extent, I think it's uh, misleading. We've always got to remember that Russia has an army of about 280,000. Um, that is insufficient to occupy Ukraine. So there's a usual standard that military uses. Uh, for every uh, 40 people who live in a country, you need one, one uh, soldier to occupy a country. So to occupy Ukraine, Russia would need 1.1 million soldiers. So what we've got actually is quite a dysfunctional Russian military that cannot capture cities 20 kilometres from Russia's borders. You know, the idea that it can menace uh, NATO countries, I think, is simply not very credible. NATO knows this. So it's, it's, it's trying to signal to domestic public that Vladimir Putin is this huge threat to Eastern Europe. It's also trying to signal to Vladimir Putin, you know, uh, don't mess with us, uh, don't interfere with NATO weapons shipments to Ukraine and so on. So that's what these exercises are about. And do you support these kind of things, Alex? Is this what we should be doing? I think we should be doing all we can to support Ukraine. I, I accept Lee's basic point that absent the use of nuclear weapons, Russia is not capable in conventional terms of, of genuinely threatening NATO countries. But of course, our friends in Ukraine have been more than threatened. They've been invaded, stomped on, bombed uh, and abused terribly, such that millions of them have had to flee their country. Now, what we're talking here is not going into Ukraine. We're talking about wargaming. We're talking about the kind of exercises that we used to mount um, uh, demonstrating the strength of NATO capabilities against Warsaw Pact countries um, for decades during the Cold War. Uh, let us hope that they listen to it, but let us hope in the meantime we don't think this is enough. We've got to keep supplying munitions and material to the Ukrainians and up that to help them win against the Russians. I was just about to say, to what end? We'll just keep going indefinitely? Do no, it's, it's, too, it's too far. One, to deter the Russians from thinking they, they could go further. And contrary to Lee's uh, point of view, I'm, I well believe they might... Uh, feel that they could snatch a, uh, another bit of Georgia, they feel they could go and snatch a bit of Moldova, that they could uh, formalise their occupation in Transnistria. There are plenty of things Russia could do out with uh, Ukraine. But secondly, we should do more to support the Ukrainians in Ukraine itself. More like what? What more? I mean, we're sending hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds of aids, uh, weaponry, sure. we're training soldiers, we're sending uh, these troops now to the Eastern, uh, Eastern Europe. What more would you have us do? When I say we, I mean we in the Western democracy sense. So the Germans have said they'll do more. Let's see it. Mm. Uh, the Americans are, are, as usual, doing more than their fair share. But let's um, see more of a contribution from other countries. And to your point, I think President Biden, for once, is, is quite right when he says this is a small price to pay to support democracy in Ukraine because we are at one of these tipping points when the world will decide whether we are a rules-based system in which the rule of law prevails or we're one in which people can do as they wish. And in the long 
long term, the cost is far greater of letting people think they can bully and push around one another. And I fully approve of the policy of buying material and sending it through to Ukraine. Marianne, where do you stand on this? Uh, so Liz Truss said inaction would be a greater provocation for Russia. So doing nothing would effectively give them permission or uh, our, our kind of... Um, you're endorsing their behaviour. Endorsement basically. of them doing more or doing what they like. And I sometimes wonder about this trust, but in this instant, I ag agree with her. I think the wargaming aspect of it, the performance of, of, of this show of strength and solidarity is important. I think that it's wrong to suggest that Russia has to occupy um, in order to cause a lot of trouble. It doesn't. It just needs to destabilise. Russia doesn't need to invade Poland to cause pain in Poland. All they need to do is start, you know, sending missiles to or near the border. Um, and I think NATO must be very careful at this point not to... I think Joe Biden has, has sort of revealed his card a few times. You know, he's kind of... Mm said the wrong thing, mm. you know, revealed right or, well, he's, he's perhaps said, said the, the, the more truthful thing, that mm. he wants regime change, that he wants to get rid of Putin. Mm. That is not in our gift. Uh, that is the kind of thing that, that history tells us does not do, you know, The wrong thing is saying minor incursion well. would be OK. Well, perhaps. The thing is, um, the, the, the thing is that we need to... Play that, play that game very carefully. And it's kind of wrong, I think, to assume that the Ukraine crisis will be over quickly because Russia, again, doesn't need millions of troops. It's got enough money and it's still getting European money through its uh, oil revenues and gas revenues to just keep chugging along until, until what? You, the, most of Ukraine is, is on its knees. It doesn't need to be entirely depopulated. It doesn't need to be all speaking Russian for it to be effectively destroyed as a, a working nation state. Well, Lee uh, was mentioned there, Liz Truss. You know, she's been kind of saying things uh, over the last few days, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially, you know, we're going to be involved until Russia get out of Ukraine. And I question, what does that actually mean? Um, you know, the, the Crimea situation, that's been way in existence since the last few days, a few months, sorry, that this conflict has been ongoing. So what does that actually mean? Does Liz Truss, Liz Truss mean that Russia have now got to get out of Ukraine, including Crimea? Is that going to happen? Is that going to inflame things? John uh, has just emailed in and said, Michelle, has our involvement helped or hindered? Are we making things worse? Are we prolonging it? What's your thoughts on all that? Well, I mean, there's no doubt that NATO involvement is prolonging the war because it has helped Ukraine to resist Russia. So if Ukraine, if NATO hadn't been in Ukraine training and arming the Ukrainian armed forces and wasn't shipping weapons to Ukraine, Ukraine probably would have already been defeated. But obviously that's not particularly ideal either. So the, the problem is not so much that, it's more what is, what is the agenda of the NATO powers? And is that the same agenda as the Ukrainian people? The Ukrainian people are fighting very bravely to repel a brutal invasion which is violating their national sovereignty. Now, is NATO interested in national sovereignty? I would suggest not. And if you think that NATO is committed to the cause of national sovereignty and international rules and so on, go talk to someone in Kosovo and Serbia, go talk to somebody in Libya or Iraq or Afghanistan. Right? This is not an organisation that is supportive of international sovereignty and the rules-based order, generally speaking. 
NATO's interest is in giving Russia a bloody nose. And that's been very clear. So we talked about Biden's so-called gaffes, where he's kind of let slip that what he really wants is Putin to be out of power. Liz Truss has said, we're going to push Russia out of the whole of Ukraine. The US Defense Secretary has said, we want to weaken Russia so it can never do anything like this again. So they have a much larger objective here. And if NATO is, is determined to pursue this war and keep it going until Russia is weakened or Putin um, is removed from power, then we're talking about a very long-term conflict. And NATO is clearly settling in for a very long-term conflict. You know, Biden is asking for 33 billion more US dollars, mm. 20 billion of which is, is military assistance. The result of a prolonged kind of proxy-style conflict will be to totally destroy the Ukrainian people. We will have a Syria on the borders of Europe and we'll live with the consequences for decades to come. So that is, that is the problem when you have a, a conflict that becomes so internationalised. It's really going to be devastating. Mary, did you want to go back? Well, I think the thing is, Ukraine will be decimated regardless. Even if NATO tomorrow, uh, you know, got together and agreed, OK, we're just going to pull back. We won't give them any more, any more troops. We won't give them any more support. No more missiles. Just best of luck, Vlad. Um, Vladimir Zelensky, um, not the other one. Um, and then Ukraine is defeated. Russia occupies Kiev. Ukrainians aren't going to be going back under those terms. They're going to be terrified. Of course they're not going back. Then you've just got a decimated population and, and the kind of pro-Russian uh, Ukrainians, you know, have, have more space to roam. It's, it's, it's still a disaster. I think the thing is, NATO's stated aims don't necessarily need to be entirely aligned with the Ukrainian peoples because NATO is there to be a defensive treaty organisation of its member states. So it's uh, not... Ukraine is not in, a member state, so clearly... Well, exactly. Yet so again, it's not well, inappropriate that NATO say we're acting in our best interest and that is the UK's yeah, the, best the interest difficulty, as well. The difficulty... That's OK. NATO is pursuing its interests in Ukraine. They don't necessarily align with the interests of the Ukrainian people. So... We, oh, we know well, no, they're pursuing their interests against it's Russia. Not a fine, it's just that Ukraine it's not a happens fine to distinction. be there. So Zelensky himself, President Zelensky himself, was negotiating with the Russians almost from the very beginning of the war, right? And Zelensky said, we know that they've invaded because they don't want us to become a member of NATO. We're going to have to put neutrality on the table. Those were the terms. And he was even saying, um, we, you know, people, lives are more important than territory which was raising the prospect that he would even sacrifice some territory to Russia to end the war. Now, NATO's position is, no, Russia needs to be expelled from all of Ukrainian territory. So clearly you've got a mismatch between a local a government on the ground that is most interested in protecting its citizens and NATO, which is most interested in using Ukraine to bloody Russia. And the, longer, the, more, the, the more the war goes on, the more NATO will come to determine the causes of war. And if by pushing Russia out of Ukraine, we mean pushing it out of Crimea, then this becomes a totally existential conflict for sure. Russia, not just Putin, but for the Russian people, because most people in Crimea believe themselves to be Russian. Most people in Russia believe Crimea to be part of Russian territory. And this is not a new thing. Crimea was only transferred to Russia in 1954 when Ukraine was part of the USSR. Yeah. It was a purely administrative transfer, but it's always been understood to be Russian. And immediately after Ukraine became independent in the early 90s, the Russian Duma was petitioning to get Crimea back. There is, there is no way that Russia is going to sacrifice Crimea without a tremendous fight. So it escalates this conflict into a total existential struggle. 
between Russia and the West, which is very dangerous because it means that this is going to be a grinding war that will go on for many, many years. And there's always the risk of escalation into an, into an all-out nuclear conflict. Yeah, well, real mixed uh, responses coming through on the email. Alex says, Michelle, we're sleepwalking into World War Three, But Paul is the complete opposite. He says, Michelle, now is the time to instruct a no-fly zone over Ukrainian airspace. But don't you worry, uh, Paul, that that will create what Alex has just suggested, a further escalation, potentially World War Three. Let me know all your thoughts on that, gbviews at gbnews.uk. I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, you might have seen Jacob Rees-Mogg. He's been writing little uh, notes, little letters uh, to people's desks, telling them basically get themselves back into work. Well, he's up in the ante now, sharing lots of empty office space pictures with us. Um, do you think that we should just be paying for civil servants to have empty offices? I don't. I'll have that and more after the break. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes and Car. I'm Michelle Jubery. Keeping me company till seven, Alex Dean, who's a PR consultant, Lee Jones, Professor of Political Economy and International Relations, and Mariano Hotta, who is an anthropologist. Lots of you guys getting in contact still about that first topic. You're sharing uh, some quite upsetting stories with me, actually, about your loved ones that are in care homes as we speak or have been. So many of you are sharing the same kind of stories about the windows still. I mean, really, we're still having that happen. Uh, it seems anyway that people are only allowed to communicate with their loved ones through an open window. Uh, Catherine, though, said, hang on, Michelle, how about looking at it from the manager's point of view in the care homes? What about staffing levels if COVID enters the homes, especially uh, at the start of COVID before the vaccines? People's relatives would really suffer mm. if there weren't any staff there to look after them. Yeah, Catherine, I hear you, but, you know, at some point... People do have to be able to interact because what is the point in keeping people alive if they're just existing as opposed to living? Um, anyway, keep your stories coming through and I'll um, read some more of them out. Andy, by the way, you emailed in about the last topic we were discussing saying um, about Lee. Can you remind your guest Lee Jones that Ukraine is not a sovereign state? You tell him that he should know better. But we don't know what you mean. You've confused us all. That's what we were talking about in the Ukraine break. Is a sovereign state. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Andy, you know, don't know what you're talking about. Write back and give me some more clarity because you've got us all confused tonight. So you have. Um, what's this one, Patricia? I really enjoy Jubes and Kerr. Well, that's nice, Pat. We really enjoy your company as well. Uh, let's talk about Jacob Rees-Mogg, shall we? Have you seen what he's been up to? Uh, it makes me smile. I think it's great. I do. Uh, he's been sharing images, hasn't he, uh, of the letters, the post-it notes or whatever it is that he's been putting on people's desks, saying that he's swung by their desks and they weren't there. He looks forward to seeing them soon. And he's up the ante now. Uh, I think we've got a picture of it. There you go. If you're watching, not listening, you can see. Uh, if you're listening, not watching, I'll describe it. You're basically seeing a massive office, uh, completely and entirely empty. That was on uh, a weekday. Uh, he's not having any of it. He was quite angry about it. He's written a note. Um, his notes are saying, sorry you were out when I visited and I look forward to seeing you in the office very soon. 
He goes on to say thousands of pounds of taxpayers' money is being spent and either they need to be there or not. And if not, we should put someone else in the property. What do you think to that? He is in charge as well about efficiencies, isn't he? Trying to find government efficiencies. Alex, what I, do you think to this? I think he's right. And I think you only have to be one of the many people waiting for a driving licence or HGV licence or a passport renewal mm. to appreciate the point. There are some things that certainly can't be done from home. And we've seen it is directly connected to this. The um, delay in getting a passport renewed gone from three weeks to now 10 weeks, mm. to now regularly missing that. So if you're watching this and you're planning to have a summer holiday and you need to get your passport renewed, you're already nip and tuck to getting a passport uh, for a, a summer holiday. Uh, and we learned this week that the head of the agency running that has been working, she's been working from uh, home, some three hours plus away mm. from the office concerned. If you work more than three hours away from a job that needs you to be in, in there, seeing where the bottlenecks are and taking care of business, you really you might be you might be giving some good advice. You might be a good advisor, but you're not running a business. You're not actually uh, running it properly. I'm sorry. That's that's that's. I think that's right. Mary Anders, and I can tell oh, by I can hear your expressions. Oh, such nonsense, Alex. It's such nonsense. Okay, firstly, if you are running the whole of the UK passport agency, you don't need to be standing over someone who's filling in an administrative form, checking they're doing their job. Your job is strategic. It's much bigger. It covers departments and agencies and offices right across the UK. Whether that particular individual is working from home, working from home, or working from one of the many offices that are situated around the British Isles, is neither here nor there. That she's doing a good job is the question. Now, that is a separate question to where she's doing her work. The picture that Jacob Rees-Mogg, with his snidey little notes for colleagues, is a picture of the Cabinet Office. I'm a taxpayer. I'd certainly care whether those people are doing their work or not. I don't think they're not in you... the office because they're down the pub or having an extended picnic in the park. They're doing their job just somewhere else. Oh, I appreciate you're an anthropologist. You've got a laptop in front of you. It doesn't mean you're not at home, Michelle. It doesn't mean you're not working. You're here working no, she, instead. She, she's in the studio. Yeah, I'm in I, the I appreciate that you're an anthropologist. It's just nonsense. But, um, I think without meaning to, for me at least, you've put your finger on the problem. Because with the position <laughs> you were taking about things being strategic, that's very suggestion that you no longer need to concern yourself with the details of an organisation. You no longer need to walk the halls. You no longer need to show staff that you are present with your leadership and that you care about their well-being, and that you're, that you're active in thinking about their future and that you're leading and really visibly directing an organisation. That's the problem. You're making, you think strategic no, can be done from a laptop at home? No, absolutely wrong. not. But I think you're making an enormous assumption about someone else's working diary that you and I do not have any access to, and so we don't know at all. I don't think it's probably likely that um, that this individual is sitting at their desk from 8am to 5pm or whatever and never leaves the house. I don't think that is the case. I don't think the, the ceiling fell down when everybody really was working from home. And actually, it turns out that you can work flexibly. You can work collaboratively. Yes, you do need face-to-face -face interaction, but that's not the only thing. We don't need to wind the clock back to 1954 um, and throw away all the benefits and efficiencies. I mean, yeah, Jacob Rees-Mogg is the Minister for Government Efficiency. He should probably take a moment to think about the efficiency of not having to do a pointless commute to an office where you could actually sit down at your desk 
half an hour earlier and get on with your job. Well, Lee, Graham has just emailed in. He's not messing around. He says, sack them all and send the work abroad. Now, I think you've hit an interesting point there, Graham, because if indeed all of this work can be done remotely and everyone's saying, well, I can just be in front of my laptop and it's all the same, you've got to be careful what you wish for, Lee, because once some of these bosses cotton on that actually I can indeed operate seamlessly with a remote workforce, it won't take long for some of these bosses to sit there and think, well, hang on just a nanosecond because I might as well reduce my wage bill. What am I paying remote workers in the UK X amount for when I could be paying remote workers in Timbuktu a fraction of the cost? Well, as a trade unionist, that was always one of my arguments against closing the universities. The primary argument was my work is essential. The work that I do with my students is essential and we were harming students by locking down the campuses and so I always argued we need to reopen them. Yeah, yeah. But a secondary argument was what, what message are we sending that our work is not essential and can be done remotely over Zoom? Well, why not outsource it to, to cheaper labour in India or the Philippines then, like a lot of back office stuff? So I think it's just very self-defeating yeah. uh, for a lot of people to argue that the job can be done just as well from home. I do, th I mean, I think Rees-Mogg's approach is a little bit crude because I do think that some work can be done just as well from home, but not all. Um, and I think he makes a good point that, you know, if offices are empty, uh, maybe they should be uh, put to some other use. More broadly, I think there was a, a sense in which many people in public service retreated from the public during the pandemic. And I think that wasn't right. A lot of people were let down, for example, by social services or let down by educators, educational institutions. And I think broadly speaking, Rees-Mogg is right to try to get civil servants back into the office where they can communicate, where they can be monitored and so on. I think the specific case about passports, maybe not because 90% of passport office staff work outside of London anyway, so they're not going to be personally supervised. But as a general principle, I think COVID has become a kind of catch-all excuse for both the public and importantly the private sector for very poor levels of service. I mean, anybody that's tried to call up any kind of call centre, for example, whether it's public or private, will be told, oh, we're receiving much higher than usual call volumes. You know, you're going to have to wait four hours to, mm. to get through. It's become a kind of catch-all excuse for poor performance and letting down the public. And I think Rees-Mogg is quite right to take a stand. The question is, he's the Minister for Efficiencies. Why is he having to go around and look? Well, That's not very efficient. Sure. But I think this, in this discussion, I think Marianne, who I think at least, I, I think at least is, is further to the left than I am, is advocating a position which would have outcomes of which you would not approve. Because if you pursue this line that it's perfectly fine to work remotely and just basically dial in your work or send it in, in the end, you first of all, you destroy the culture that grows when you mm. come together and work together. But secondly, to the trade unionist point that Lee was espousing, if you reduce workers from Mary Ann that I know and Lee that I know from the office and we spent that time together with the water cooler and we talked about their kids and we, we you're just dialing in for the meeting going through the meeting dialing off at the end you reduce people from individuals whose career you care about who have a future in your organization to units a and b unplug a plug in b and then whether it's cheaper whether it's better or the time zone suits you more to have it done in another place in the end what do you care it's not lee or marianne anymore it's just units a and b and so mm -hmm. i think the, the, the advocacy you make will take you to a solution you don't like mm -hmm.
Well, yeah, as I, I think, said earlier, be careful what you wish for. Um, lots and lots of you, um, you know, you're sharing some really upsetting stories that you're all going through. So we're, the conversation here has moved on, but lots of you are putting a lot of time into sending me emails as we speak about some of your experiences. Um, and I promise you I will read all of those, um, probably on my way home from tonight. But uh, lots of you on this one as well, saying if you're working from home, uh, your work isn't getting done. Do you work productively when you're at home? What do you do? Do you get up, by the way, get showered, get dressed? Do you just dress your top half and sit in your pyjamas <laughs> at the bottom? Uh, sometimes, I've often thought, because uh, if you're listening, you don't know what I'm talking about rather than watching, but here, you can't see my legs. And often I've thought to myself, I wonder if I could get away with, you know, wearing trainers or whatever, but it just wouldn't feel right. I think there's something about actually making an effort with what you look like, presenting yourself well. It gets you into the right headspace, doesn't it? Anyway, I digress. Uh, let's talk kids shall we? Uh, children from primary school should no longer be excluded. That's according to a new report. Ex-children Tsar and Longfield says exclusions are highly damaging and put children at risk of mental health problems and violence. The report also says that a well-being uh, ranking should be included in school league tables. Oh, Mary-Anne, listen, right, I've got a little baby. He's not at school yet, but when he is at school, I will not appreciate some unruly kid messing around and disrupting my child's learning. And if he was allowed to stay in the school, I'd be going into that school myself and insisting that the kid gets kicked out. So what's wrong with expelling children from so primary school? my question to you then is if your child is the one who gets the parent phone call saying little, I don't know your kid's name, but little so-and-so. Let's call him Johnny. Little Johnny. And you said, little Johnny's upset today, but you wish him the well for, for his school day. And then you get a phone call at half past nine saying, little Johnny's just knocked a table over. You're going to have to come and get him. It's the third time that's happened this week. So, pff, sorry, uh, you're going to have to uh, find, send him to a pupil referral unit where the doors are locked behind him. And he's now on a fast track to being branded as a naughty little boy with no hopes and no future and no prospects. And so then he's contained. He's not supported. You're not supported. He's not educated. He's just contained because everybody has written him off and he's just going to tread water, hopefully, until he ends up in juvenile detention. Well, is that first, actually what you would want for your kid? Because that is the reality for the children whose families are in this situation. Well, and we are failing, first, bottom line. My little Johnny would not be wandering around, tossing tables over repeatedly. And if he was, he'd be worried about what would happen to him when he got home. But what if when your little Johnny doesn't have, uh, has an undiagnosed autism, for example? or another emotional or educational, psychological, behavioural, physical issue that hasn't been identified? What if, through no fault of your own, your, your family is going through some stuff? That child needs to be supported. They need to be looked after. They are massively vulnerable. And expelling a child from school, a place that should be safe and supportive and encouraging you know, and nurturing is I get a bit tired of line. this, Lee. This, you know, this school should be supportive and nurturing and this and that. No, it shouldn't. It should be there to <laughs> educate these children, be educated, and then go home. And I think one of the problems, actually, Lee, if I'm going to uh, indulge myself here, is that we're all wanting these schools to become absolutely everything. We want these teachers to be therapists. We want them to be extended family members. We want them to look after these kids' well-being and this and that. Actually, no, I don't. 
I just want you to teach my child. Thank you very much. Am I missing something? Yeah. No, I think, you, I think, well, I think you're right that we do expect an awful lot of schools these days. I think we expect schools to solve all the social problems that have arisen from, you know, the breakdown of traditional families, you know, uh, greater economic insecurity, the rise of uh, mental health and poverty and so on. And we expect teachers to take these kids on, socialise them, as you, say, as you say, act as therapists and social workers and so on. There's a huge amount of pressures on schools. The question of expulsions, though, if a child is expelled from one school, that is not solving the problem child. It's just handing them over to a different institution. A different institution that's probably well established to deal with it. Not Alex, am I being... Not necessarily. They can go from I, school to school to I school and then the to a pupil referral unit. Sorry, I share some of the concerns that my fellow panellists have set out, not least because when I was at the criminal bar, the, stu the, 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 the clients you had at the younger end of the spectrum had almost invariably gone through the kind of process that Marianne and Lee have been talking about mm -hmm. of expulsion and so forth. But those examples, I'm afraid, are not an answer to your question about expulsion. Those are concerns about what happens to the child once they've been expelled. Mm. And you're in perfectly entitled... And which, so the answer to that, I think, is to seek to improve the uh, provision of, of genuine education for those who are removed from uh, one school environment and put in another educational environment. But you are right that, on the other hand, the interests of those children whose, um, whose schooling can be disrupted, and it can be wholly disruptive uh, by other children if not uh, contained or, or given any sense of discipline, uh, should be taken into account too. And ultimately, other children are entitled to get an education without it being effectively stymied by a child who's out of control. Uh, there is one more part to that, which is that the first school should have had a better disciplinary process in the first place. Because mm. there's got to be, at, at least in the first instance, there's got to be grounds between um, child playing up and child being expelled. Indeed. And by the way, the average class size is about 27 in some of these primary schools. So, you know, I just don't think it's fair on the other 26 if you've got one child misbehaving. But let me know your thoughts on that. Do you think that you should be able to uh, expel primary schools, so children from the age of five to 11? Um, lots of you guys are talking about working from home. Anthony says, uh, you should cut the London, London waiting if you work in London, but live remotely. Tony, I've got to say, I completely agree with you on that one. Uh, Paul says, Michelle, excluding a disruptive kid might be damaging for that child, but it's great news for the other uh, 30 or so kids in the class. I completely agree with you, Paul. Um, again, that sentiment is coming through thick and fast. Uh, Dawn says, parents should have to earn up face up to the fact that they've got a naughty kid no matter who they are. Uh, and I have to say, again, I've said it at the start and I'll repeat it again, lots of you are sending in your stories. I can see how long your emails are. You're taking time to send your stories in. I appreciate it. And I'm so sorry for some of the horrible experiences that you've had and that are still having. Let's see what we can do to try and change some of these rules around visiting. Uh, for now, that's all we've got time for. Mary-Anne, Lee, Alex, thank you very much for your time and thank you at home for your company too. Have yourself a fantastic fantastic weekend and I shall see you on Monday. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Co the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.